This month on Focus Black Oklahoma. Learn about Oklahoma's shortage of black teachers and the need to ensure black students see representation in their classrooms. When mental health is under-resourced and guns are unregulated in the state, trigger laws could be one solution to preventing tragedies like what happened at St. Francis. Jamie Glisson continues her series on political candidates from across the state. Hear from Congressional District 1 candidate Adam Martin in the fourth installment. Understand more of the importance of solar energy and how it can support communities of color. And we meet Michael Vaughn, the founder and executive director of the Urban Coders Guild, which is celebrating five years of ensuring black and brown youth are reflected in the tech industry. All this and more on Focus Black Oklahoma. Focus Black Oklahoma is sponsored by Philip Seminary with video of the Tulsa Race Massacre annual lectureship from the author of Lynched, The Power of Memory in a Culture of Terror. Online at ptstulsa.edu slash lectures. This is Focus Black Oklahoma. I'm Kuma Roberts. Oklahoma's teacher shortage is reaching critical levels, but finding black teachers is almost impossible. Anthony Cherry has details on how finding representation in education is the new challenge for school districts. At the Tulsa Public Schools School Board meeting on Monday, August 1st, 2022, Superintendent Dr. Deborah Gist issued an urgent statewide call to arms, characterizing the Oklahoma teacher shortage as a situation of catastrophic proportions. You might say, yeah, catastrophe is not too uh, extreme a word to use to describe it. John Waldron is a Democratic representative from Oklahoma District 77. Before joining the Common Education Committee, Waldron also served as a teacher at Brooker T. Washington High School, a historically black high school in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. I think it's a catastrophe uh, of you know, historic proportions. We hit a new record in emergency teacher certifications in July. The Oklahoma State Board of Education has approved 1,892 emergency certificates and counting. This includes 726 renewals since June 1st. While emergency certified teachers who may or may not be teaching in their areas of expertise may eventually learn to master the craft of teaching over time. But simply put, a less qualified teacher is a significant barrier to student success. We don't have enough young people going into education through the traditional and even the non-traditional pipelines to meet the number of teachers who are retiring after, um, you know, after long years of service. And that affects learning outcomes for our students. This teacher shortage disproportionately impacts schools with high numbers of poor black and brown populations that are already struggling. And as you might expect, uh, the more uh, at risk or vulnerable the school uh, population is, the deeper the teacher recruitment problem is. That is, if you're in a school that's by uh, Title I, you're more likely to have inexperienced emergency certified teachers than if you were in a school in a more affluent neighborhood. So yeah, it's a big problem. 
According to a RAND Corporation survey, one of four teachers plan to leave the profession in 2021. When it comes to black teachers, those numbers doubled. Fewer than one in 10 teachers are black in the United States at 7%. Compare this to the fact that black Americans make up 13% of the nation's population. Also consider that the number of black male teachers is lower than 2%. Melissa Jones Chunu is a doctoral candidate at Oral Roberts University studying instructional leadership. Her role as an administrator at Celia Clinton Elementary School gives her a unique perspective on the teaching shortage in general. Black teachers are more likely to teach at schools with more diverse populations, as well as more diverse challenges. And I think that representation, again, matters. And our young students of different races need to see people that look like them. Urban school districts in Oklahoma tend to have three times the number of black and twice the number of Hispanic students than the state average. Is there hope to break this trend as Oklahoma continues to hemorrhage qualified and certified professional educators of all races? By the year 1950, approximately half of all black professionals working in the United States were employed as teachers. Historically, black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, provided black educators and other professionals with training and advanced degrees. They played a crucial role in American history because predominantly white institutions, or PWIs, were segregated and barred blacks from entrance before desegregation. Historian Tia C. Matkins from the University of California, Berkeley, asserts that it was desegregation mandated by Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, which marked the beginning of a mass exodus of black educators in the United States. Soon after integration, resegregation of staff began. Black teachers were generally not hired to teach in classrooms with white students in them, integrated or not. 39,000 black teachers lost their jobs after desegregation in 17 states from 1954 to 1965. Between 1988 and 2008, teachers of color were 24% more likely to leave the teaching profession than their white counterparts, according to Madkins. Today, the loss of black teachers persist with more nuanced factors at play. Black teachers are more likely to be hired at challenging schools with high turnover rates, insufficient resources, in high-needs populations. 75% reported high stress levels. Many of these black teachers matriculated from school districts that provided subpar K-12 experiences, funding, teacher quality, resources, large class sizes, and staff layoffs. This creates a destructive cycle for black communities. Disdain for this same cycle drives thousands of black teachers to enter the profession to help dismantle it. The problem has been getting the best of them to stay. There are many barriers that um, have caused us to recruit quality teachers. And I'm gonna put this on colleges. I don't think that many colleges have adequately prepared our graduates to really teach in these areas. 
Another significant factor includes the lack of blacks enrolled in college and teacher preparation courses. Overall enrollment of all demographics in teacher preparation courses has dwindled in the past decade. Lack of preparedness for standardized testing requirements for teacher licensure has been a hurdle for teachers of all ethnicities. There is also the hurdle of the expense of the test, especially if a potential candidate takes the test multiple times. Jones Shunu speaks to this urgent need. Oh, well, <laughs> definitely education needs to be funded more, duh. That, that would solve half your problems right there. People have to live. People have loans to pay off. And the average college student with a bachelor's degree has about a hundred, a hundred and twenty-five thousand to pay off. With a bachelor's and maybe a master's. Are you gonna tell me I'm coming in at maybe thirty-nine, maybe forty thousand a year? And I'm supposed to live off that and pay off these loans? Mm. But then I can go to Texas and start off at fifty-eight doing the same thing <laughs> where, where are you going <laughs> exactly ultimately the goal is to retain homegrown talent representative waldron added well the uh, new law that we passed provides thousands of dollars in stipends i think a twenty five hundred dollar initial scholarship plus money over the first five years that the teacher is in a in oklahoma public school and it comes to something like eighty eighty five hundred dollars in incentives over that period of time that lowers economic barriers which means opens up education to more kinds of students and that should promote diversity along with the recruitment efforts our education schools are undertaking now. That will make a uh, very big difference, but it's gonna make that difference slowly over time. We've got to keep with it. It's going to take time. We've done a few other good things uh, as well, but uh, you said our education policymakers, the truth is lots of us get involved in education policy. Um, many of us from a different direction. And those guys want to talk about critical race theory. They want to talk about indoctrination. They want to talk, they want to accuse teachers of being all kinds of terrible things. They want to, they call them leftists. They talk about their liberal teachers unions. And these guys are really not being helpful. Um, that kind of language and rhetoric draw, it drives people out of the profession. Um, and it contributes to mm -hmm. the erosion of, quality for public education. Maybe some of the politicians are, don't realize what they're doing. Recruiting and retaining qualified people involves putting them in thoughtful, supportive places where they can thrive. Funding is merely a part of the complex equation. Waldron emphasizes the importance of cultivating a homogenous pool of talent. Uh, and the first principal at Booker T was a man named Ellis Walker Woods. Uh, the man was a legend in his time, and he needs to be remembered today. He was principal for 35 years. He knew all the kids in his community. When he heard about a bright student in the middle school, he would make sure that they were coming to high school, which was not everybody didn't do that back in the day. But he talked to your parents and you went to Booker T. And then he'd keep track of your progress at Booker T and come and talk to you about college. And if you said, well, you know, there's no money for college, he would say, let me make some calls. And he had a network of HBCUs around the region and he'd get you into one of those schools. And then there'd be a call about graduate school 
uh, maybe your PhD. And then someday you'd get a telegram from EW saying, okay, now it's time to come back and teach. That's how we did it. He built it from the ground up using the resources in the community. We should do the same. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Anthony Cherry in Tulsa. Tulsa community has witnessed firsthand the tragic impact that lagging mental health funding and unrestricted access to guns has on a community. Shonda Little shares more on the need for gun trigger laws in Oklahoma. On June 1st, Tulsa residents were plunged into chaos as news of a mass shooting at St. Francis Hospital flooded social media. The public soon learned that the shooter, Michael Lewis, blamed Dr. Preston Phillips for his chronic pain. Dr. Phillips died in the ambush attack, as did Dr. Stephanie Hooson, receptionist Amanda Glenn, and patient William Love. Lewis also perished by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Local law enforcement released information that indicated the assailant had been a patient of Dr. Phillips's, who voiced multiple complaints about pain following a back surgery and had made multiple calls to the doctor's office requesting more treatment in the days leading up to the shooting. In spite of showing these red flags, the medical professionals treating Lewis had no mechanism to stop him from purchasing a firearm through red flag or trigger laws designed to keep firearms temporarily from people in an acute state of mental health crisis. Law enforcement confirmed that Lewis purchased the firearms used in the massacre the day before the shooting. Just a week earlier, the third most deadly school shooting was unleashed upon an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. A committee within the Texas State House of Representatives released a 77-page report that documented years of mental health red flags demonstrated by the shooter, who had legally bought the two AR-style guns used in the shooting. On July 4th, a gunman opened fire at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois. Just like in Tulsa and Uvalde, the assailant had legally purchased his guns with well-documented red flags. Dustin Shore is a passionate supporter of red flag or trigger laws to keep firearms out of the hands of vulnerable people struggling with mental health issues. For over 10 years, Shore served as a nurse in a pain management clinic in Tulsa. In fact, he even rotated shifts in the very St. Francis building where the June 1st shooting occurred. Shore has witnessed situations that have become dangerous when a pain management patient has become physiologically addicted to narcotic pain medication. They're just in this chronic pain and you cannot really test for chronic pain. I mean, it's really based on what you tell us your pain is, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, because there's no true test for pain. Shore says he's witnessed patients who fell into this struggle. Because these patients are dealing with a health crisis that has left them in chronic pain and then are managing high-powered, addictive narcotics to combat that pain, Shore does not believe that gun possession is safe while patients are under this type of care. 
He recounts numerous occasions of being threatened by patients seeking an early refill of their medication. What these narcotics do to someone is not safe. I would not, I think that when there's a patient that is on pain management, on prescription narcotics, they should not be allowed to get a gun because you are not fully yourself while you're on that medication. There should be trigger laws that say, hey, this person is taking this types of medication, so therefore they are not fully capable to have firearms, just as if you were working. Others who support the use of red flag or trigger laws cite the suicide risk for those in the throes of mental health crisis. Jeremy Coleman has been a pastor in Oklahoma for almost 15 years, most currently serving in South Oklahoma City. He is known on TikTok as that pastor from Oklahoma with a platform of 325,000 followers. Hi, my name is Jeremy Coleman, and I am a pastor here in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I've been serving churches in Oklahoma for the last uh, almost 15 years. And right now I am uh, I'm serving at a church in southern Oklahoma City. Uh, I also have a TikTok platform. I'm, uh, a lot of folks know me as that pastor from Oklahoma. And, uh, and we have about 325,000 folks in that community. Coleman started his TikTok page as a way to voice his frustrations at the conservative politics of the evangelical right in America white evangelicalism that is so rampant in today's church. I believe that guns in the United States and especially associated with evangelicalism have have almost become a golden calf. What's happening is, is that it's causing more harm than it is doing any good. And so I think I think what we saw in Uvalde was a prime example of that, unfortunately, is that you know, the good guy with a gun theory is just not playing out anymore. And so something drastic has to happen. Coleman is aware that some mass shootings have occurred at churches, but he says he feels fortunate that he has never felt personally threatened by one of his parishioners. Instead, what he worries about more is the easy access to legal guns leading to mental health deaths by suicide. Mental health has been so stigmatized by the church that it's not being treated. Um, people are not seeking and receiving the help that they need. And with firearms being so readily available uh, and so easy to attain, especially in, uh, you know, especially in more conservative areas like where I'm at here in Oklahoma, the problem is, is that people who may be in a mental health crisis and who at church on Sunday are told to just pray about it. Uh, can also get a hold of a of a firearm on Tuesday and either harm themselves or others. And that's the reason that we need radical reform on gun laws um, because it's not it's not about taking people's rights away. It's about keeping people safe. It's about keeping our kids safe. We need to love our neighbor. If you are somebody who considers yourself a Jesus follower, if you love your neighbor, you are begging for gun reform. For focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Shonda Little in Cheyenne. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. (laughs) 
In our fourth installment of her series exploring candidates running for political office across the state, Jamie Glisson speaks with Congressional District 1 candidate Adam Martin. In August, the United Indian Nations of Oklahoma held a candidates forum at the River Spirit Casino in Tulsa on respecting tribal sovereignty. Many local, state, and federal candidates were in attendance. Most notably, nearly half of those that identify as the more conservative choice did not show. Meanwhile, Adam Martin, a 26-year-old Democratic nominee for Oklahoma's first congressional district, was in attendance and took the time to share his thoughts. Martin said it was important to him to, quote, reach all demographics in this state and district so voters can make educated decisions in November, end quote. The afternoon was filled with fellowship, hope, and determination as candidates shared their thoughts on various issues and pledged respect to the tribal sovereignty of Oklahoma's Indian nations. After acknowledging the sacred land on which he was standing, Martin said he would do everything in his power to allow our tribes the freedom to govern themselves as they see fit. Here is Martin discussing his thoughts on gun violence in America. You know, when you look at Uvalde and all the things that are going on in the country with the school shootings, that's, that didn't just happen yesterday in Uvalde, that's, that's happening very frequently. And so I think we need to make sure on a federal level we are proposing legislation to uh, hold these gun sellers accountable uh, because it's not about being, you know, anti-gun. It's about making sure that we are protecting our communities, making sure that people feel safe when they go to school, uh, and making sure that we are addressing the very people that many Republicans say they care about, but then they do nothing about it when it comes to gun violence to our children. You know, they're so pro-life, but when it comes to children being slain in the classroom, that's not up for debate for them. And I, I would argue for my opponent to answer those questions effectively because his party that he represents so well that they don't even want to talk about gun violence in our communities and, and how these this weaponry is, is, is traumatizing our country as a whole and people are scared to go to school you know we've seen the video of the oklahoma mom uh, on tiktok that went viral of her showing her little her baby boy you know what to do if a, an intruder with a gun comes into the classroom this is coming far too normal and so we need to make sure that we have representation that wants to do that work effectively and to protect our communities when they go to their place of worship, when they go to buy their groceries at the grocery store. Um, but most importantly, making sure that I am voting on bills that are uh, watching where these gun sales are being made and putting in stricter uh, laws on who's getting their hands on this weaponry. It's not about taking people's guns because that's the notion that's been painted far too many times that we can't have proper gun safeties in place to um, keep people safe. Uh, and they want to paint it as, oh, Democrats want to take away your guns. And my my venture, I'll tell you, I'm from Wagner, Oklahoma. You know, there's FFA there. I mean, I went to Oklahoma State. And, and I know this is a long-winded answer, but what I'm telling you is uh, we do have to do better when it comes to gun violence in our country and making sure that Congress, once I'm elected, that we do something on a, on a federal level to address this problem effectively because it seems as if uh, the local levels aren't doing enough. And so if we can do something as a collective group uh, in Congress, then I want to be a part of that change because people are waiting for it. When the topic of Oklahoma's strengths and weaknesses came up, Martin mentioned the ever-growing base of active voters looking for change. 
These newly active voters have a lot to say in the way their state is run and the expectations in which campaign promises are implemented. So here in Oklahoma, we do well on talking about change, but you know, we don't really go into the regard of where that change is really being implemented. So Oklahomans, we are coming alive and understanding that what's being presented to us is not working and we need better, that we have leaders that are presenting change and presenting legislation that we buy into. So when you ask the question, what are the things that we aren't doing good on is, is how we talk about the issues and holding our public officials accountable for not following through with what they said they were going to do. I think that's very important. You know, what we do good on here in Oklahoma, we, we speak up. You know, whether that change happens on both sides, we actually do speak up. We do make it very known that what's being presented is unacceptable. And so I know that's very vague, but what I'm saying is we, we need to do better, but, but we got to get out and vote. You know, I've learned that living in Oklahoma all my life, that we don't just accept anything. But lately, in four years now, it seems as if we've just been accepting anything that's been presented to us. And so when I see what's going on in our country, uh, I want to make sure that I'm fighting for those issues that people care about. And it's making sure that when I answer the question like what's good and what's bad, uh, what's bad is that we have bad leadership that isn't working for people. And what's good is that we're speaking up and we're wanting to see that change be effective and implemented. Implementing change has been a common theme among candidates running against incumbents. Martin referenced some of the, quote, broken promises made by Governor Stitt, end quote, as an example of lack of follow through like paying teachers a $100,000 salary or bringing a major corporation to set up home in our state. When it comes to the roughly 807,000 people that live in Oklahoma's first congressional district, Adam Martin said the needs of his constituents are plenty. Education, women's rights, and making ends meet in the current economy were the top three. So in my position as a congressman, I want to make sure that even though I'm on a federal level and some of the things are local issues and state issues, I still want to hear about it because I still want to put a voice to it, right? I still want to make sure that when we're allocating those funds on a federal level, that it's getting to the community that I represent and making sure that it's being used in the right way to benefit uh, this community uh, effectively because they're in need of it. And so they're tired of the politics as usual and they're ready for change. People are ready for change. People are tired. They lose hope in the process. They lose hope in leadership. And so um, I want to make sure that I'm listening to these things that have been brought to my attention from day one, because there's a lot of issues that have been that have been thrown my way for my constituents that are important to them because they want to see people that are in it for the right reasons to work on their behalf. Martin's Republican opponent, Kevin Hearn, did not show up to speak at the Respecting Tribal Sovereignty event nor did he return the emails or phone calls made in an attempt to interview for this statewide series. You know, and it's funny because when I talk about representation that works, we also have to have representation that we can trust. And when it comes to Kevin Hearn, he took PPP money. He took that loan like it was nobody's business. Now we, we're in the, the, this position where we're talking about student loan forgiveness and people that received Pell Grants that didn't that came from literally nothing. And they needed that. They needed that help when they went to college. You know, they're arguing that right now. And he's arguing that, like saying, like, oh, that's unjustifiable. This un, you know, recognized spending. But it was OK for you to take the PPP money, which was a loan for your business and for your growth. What we need to be talking about 
is how can we do better on uh, representation that wants to work for us. And Kevin Hearn has broken that trust within our community. He has broken that trust time and time again by not showing up. He broken that trust by taking the PPP money and throwing a rock and hiding his hand. I would ask the question, where do your values lie? Are they with District 1 or are they to align your pockets for, for your growth? As someone who was born and raised in Wagner, Adam had this to say to the youth growing up in our state and to those who answered the call to run for public office. Don't give up, keep fighting, and know who you are. Because when you know who you are, you can make change. And when you, um, when you have the heart to do the right thing, people may not notice right then, but if you keep working, they will. Don't get deterred, keep going, keep fighting, you know, because um, people are watching and you need to make sure you're presenting um, something to people that uh, they can believe and have that hope again. Because like I said in the beginning of this, this interview, people have lost hope and we need to make sure that we're building to give them hope again because uh, that's important. They're the ones that have been affected and we need to make sure that we're putting a voice to those issues. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Jamie Glisson in Tulsa. Historically, access to sustainable energy resources has been out of reach for many marginalized communities. Don Carter has the story about We Solar, a community solar firm that aims to change that. An energy burden is the percentage of household income that is needed to pay for electricity, heating, and transportation. Basically, Take your household energy bill and divide that by your household income, and that will give you your household energy burden. According to energy.gov, in some areas, depending on location and income, energy burden can be as high as 30%. If you include all U.S. households, 44% or about 50 million households are defined as low income. The American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, or ACEEE, 2020 research found that low income Black, Hispanic, and Native American households all face dramatically higher energy burdens spending a greater portion of their income on energy bills than the average household. Location and income, this is where alternative energy can be the game changer. So We Solar is a community solar firm where we focus on creating affordable and accessible solar power for anyone who do not want panels on their roof. And We Solar, we develop community solar farms or solar gardens. That's Crystal Hansley, founder and CEO of community solar firm, We Solar, an alternative energy source that gives neighborhood community members solar power, regardless of their income and location. The solar panels are in an offsite location and made available to homeowners and renters alike. We Solar works like a subscription service. 
it's a subscription model. So it's mostly, I would say, similar to an industry like Netflix, where you can have a developer and the community members, because typically a solo farm feeds the local grid, and anyone who receives power from that grid can now opt in and choose to receive their power locally from that solar farm. We Solar was launched in Baltimore, Maryland, but what about closer to home? Can something like this be done here in Oklahoma? More specifically, in the Tulsa and Okmulgee areas? Remember, location is a huge factor. Here is Court Newkirk, Executive Director with the Okmulgee Area Development Corporation, with information he obtained while attending the 2022 National Brownfields Convention in August. And they had an actual session about turning brownfields into energy areas, energy production areas. There's only one thing allowed by the federal government to be built on a area that is contaminated and has been encapsulated uh, so it doesn't leave the area. The only thing you can do on that is build uh, a solar farm. A brown field is a former industrial or commercial site where future use is affected by real or perceived environmental contamination. The EPA's Brownfields program provides grants and technical assistance to communities, states, tribes, and others to assess, safely clean up, and sustainably reuse contaminated properties. And the former Brownfield will now be a Brightfield. Brightfields refer to solar arrays installed on Brownfield sites. According to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, renewable energy sources like converting brownfields to brightfields could supply up to 80% of U.S. electricity needs by 2050. Edith Wilson, owner of the energy consulting firm Rock Whisperer, co-founder of the Tulsa Renewable Business Alliance, an alliance of renewable energy business leaders explains. As we look out over the energy landscape in Oklahoma in general and in Tulsa or, or your city in particular, you know, we could throw up our hands and say, you know, oh, we don't have the regulations in place for community solar, you know, oh, it's bad, bad, bad. Instead, why don't we look at that as an opportunity to say, how do we build regulations that work for our community? How do we educate ourselves by looking at successful programs like Crystals in Maryland and say, how can we be part of making that happen in our community and bringing more affordable, sustainable energy to the entire community, low, middle and high income alike? And uh, I, I really love that approach of saying just because something doesn't exist doesn't mean there are barriers. It really means there are opportunities for us to, to grab the ball and carry it forward. For more information on We Solar and their community solar campaign, visit www.wesolar.energy. For more information on Tulsa Renewable Business Alliance, and alternative energy businesses, or to see how your business can get connected, 
send an email to TulsaRBA.org. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Don Carter in Okmulgee. You're listening to Focus Black Oklahoma. State Impact Oklahoma is on a listening tour with youth in the state. State Impact's Robbie Korth and KOSU's Caitlin Mills talked with a couple of Tulsa High School students about race, gender, and how they interact with their peers at school. My name is Dakota Williamson, and my pronouns are she, her, but I identify as a gender myself. My name is Melanie Daravaydoli. Um, my pronouns are she, her. Um, is race something you talk about with your friends and or parents or guardian? Have you ever felt uncomfortable because of your race at school? Race is something I talk a lot about with my friends and parents and everyone. Um, I'm Mexican, so even though there's a large population of us in Oklahoma, it's it's almost like <laughs> uh, that doesn't even matter yeah. because, yes, we are getting mocked. Yes, body shaming is a lot. <sighs> yes, it has made me feel uncomfortable at school. Um, and so from, like, day one, I've noticed that there was a difference in the way, like, I look to other people, um, but uh, with race, my family were close about it. We all talk about, you know, we saw this on the news and we thought it was, you know, kind of racist towards us, or we had problems with our neighbors previously where they called us, they called my dad Juan because he looks Mexican. They're like, hey, Juan. Alejandro, like just naming Mexican names towards us. And so that's when we started, like, we're in this together and it's not going to stop. Um, what about you, Dakota? Do you talk about these sorts of topics with them? I've been able to do it more lately as I've, like, grown more passionate about equality and equity. And b- before, it was hard because I didn't want to start anything. I was always scared of confrontation and what it would look like for me and if it would put me in danger or someone else in danger. Even today, there are sometimes when I meet new people and it's scary to think about, will you accept me as I am? And it's just like in my head, it's just this small insecurity that I still have. Um, After seeing what happened to my dad, whenever the neighbor spoke to him like that, it's always made me, like, feel like if, you know, one of us has to speak up for one one day, and it's just something I experienced when I was young, and it's made me a little scared of what people would think of us. Uh, What are classroom experiences like around discussing difficult topics? Um, for me, it's, like, good and bad. On Fridays, we would talk about events that were currently going on and really talking about, like, how does it apply to us and our friends. And there are also, like, some bad experiences. Like, one of my own friends this past year, 
in a class. She always felt uncomfortable in that class and never wanted to be in it because these other kids would just say really homophobic things. What about you, Emily? I usually kept quiet whenever we discussed things because I was scared of starting an argument with someone. Um, It really depended on the teacher. Mm -hmm. There was teachers where the classroom felt so open and like you can talk to them about what you heard on the news. And having that teacher as my homeroom was really Mm -hmm. nice and I felt lucky. Discussing difficult topics with certain teachers was kind of something new. I've never really been able to talk to an adult who like understood me, who was not my family. So that was a really good experience that I had. Michael Vaughn, the founder and executive director of the Urban Coders Guild, is celebrating five years of ensuring black and brown youth are reflected in the tech industry that gave him his start. Carlos Moreno has the story. While Tulsa schools struggle with recent political attacks, such as banning books, intimidation that teachers feel about teaching history, and redrawing school board districts in North Tulsa, Students and families are still struggling with a gap between those who have and do not have access to computers and the internet. One Tulsa nonprofit is seeking to close this gap and provide opportunities for students who are looking for careers in technology fields. A 2021 study of technology disparities conducted by Dr. Peggy Dolcini at the Haley Ford Center for Healthy Children and Families at Oregon State University found that black and Latino youth ages 14 to 17, were the most likely to have no internet access in their home, especially if these youth were in low-income households. According to the study, 29% of black youth and 21% of Latino youth had no internet access in their home. This racial disparity becomes much greater as students grow into adults who enter the workplace. Another study from 2021, conducted by financial services provider Deutsche Bank, titled America's Racial Gap and Big Tech's Closing Window found that if there isn't a big change in the next few years, 76% of Black and 62% of Latino job seekers won't have the skills needed for 86% of available U.S. jobs in the year 2045. Mikhail Vaughn is a computer programmer who is well familiar with these challenges, and he took it upon himself in 2016 to start a small after-school program teaching website and software programming skills. I've worked in tech for 20 years, living in Japan. I know what it's like to be the only person who looks like, looks like me, maybe in the entire company, but I know a lot of us black and brown folks, women um, who work in IT, who have that same experience here in the US. There's not that sense of community, not that sense of belonging in our organizations. Having these students work together, having these stu- students have these epiphanies together, you can see and hear when you speak to them that sense of, oh my God, I've learned something and I had instructors who helped. We worked together and we did this thing. Vaughn has built Urban Coders Guild into a strong nonprofit organization and in 2021 was able to start working full time as its executive director. The nonprofit has also added two staff members and four instructors, 
and is governed by a 15-member board of directors supported by local philanthropic organizations and private companies. Urban Coders Guild's mission is to provide computer science education and opportunities to youth from historically under-resourced communities. For Tulsa, this fills an important gap as few local public schools teach computer programming and even fewer institutions are specifically designed to meet the needs of minority students who are interested in careers in high-tech fields. For Vaughn, the secret to the organization's success is teaching problem-solving as well as building an environment where students and teachers are working together cooperatively. Urban Coders Guild requires a tremendous time commitment. It's five hours a week for about 30 weeks. There is also a certain level of resiliency. There are gonna be some days when they come in and sit down and everything just, just clicks and their programs work. There are gonna be some times when they are a thousand lines of code into their project and they missed a semicolon on line 493 and they have to go and find it. Um, so there's gonna be some challenges as well, but knowing, hey, come back on Thursday. <laughs> We're gonna figure this out. We're gonna figure this out together. Um, we have the instructors, they're awesome. And then we have some students who have some, have some experience and they'll kindly, um, with a certain level of excitement, look over and help, try to help um, figure out together. And that's another thing that we love, that spirit of collaboration that they have. While a simple Google search can reveal thousands of online courses and tutorials on creating websites, software, and games, student instructors Ben Schaefer and Tommy Kim believe that there's nothing like the experience of learning together in a structured environment and getting one-on-one -on -one mentorship as well as learning in a group setting. We first hear from Ben and then Tommy. I want them to like grab that. I want them to achieve their dreams. Kind of, kind of like that. I didn't have an instructor to sit beside me and like explain to me what was going on. I just had to, I just had to grab it. I had to look for it which I did, and uh, there's a lot of uh, good content out there, but it's really helpful to have an instructor who like knows what, exactly what's going on and how to, how to say you want the right path. Ben is always here to really, really tell me and uh, also help me if I'm lost at certain things. I feel like that's, another, that's like one of the main reasons that I come back. I want to learn myself, but I also want to be able to make an impact in other people's lives and especially young people's lives. So. Hearing from Urban Coders Guild students, it's clear that their learning experience was both challenging and fun. In the website and software app development courses, students were assigned the project to imagine and then build websites for historic Greenwood businesses, using the city's 1921 Polk Directory of Businesses. Students Ricardo Rodriguez, Trinity Acker Nieves, and Luis Maldonado were part of the Android app development course. Well, considering we did a uh, thing for Greenwood and stuff, learning about the districts and, you know, a website that take us there, and also the Pokedex and, you know, uh, to do the list. It's pretty fun doing those things. Um, just learning how to do new things every time. It sure was challenging at times, but that was the fun part. the environment. Like, everyone in our class was supportive, and yeah. when, like, we got, when we made an accomplishment, everyone was, like, proud of each other. So I think that was something that really helped all of us, because we were all learning something new. In the game development course, students, including sisters Sukiyaki and Arena Kato, were introduced to the Unity gaming engine, which can be used to create two-dimensional as well as three-dimensional games and virtual environments. We first hear from Sukiyaki and then Arena. 
I like um, like learning like how to play games because uh, it was what I wanted wanted to do, and it also inspired me to keep on going even without them, and like try to like watch videos too for other things that I had. And like the instructors were very nice and they were very kind. They answered like almost all the questions you had. I think they can like impact a lot of Tulsa, like the underrepresented people in Tulsa, especially because like especially since it's free, I think it allows people to like not be afraid to try something new. Because a lot of times computer science requires like, you know, money and you know parental support for like transportation and Urban Coder provides a free and provides free transportation for anyone who needs it. Ricardo, Luis, Trinity, Sugiyaki, and Irina were part of the spring 2022 cohort of 48 students who graduated from the program at the end of May. Mikhail Vaughn understands that the dedication his students have put into the program and his inspiration is seeing their reactions when that hard work pays off. I know this is a, a radio interview, um, so you can't see my eyes right now, but I, um, my eyes always well up a little bit when I think about, you know, that moment when you're sitting with the kids and their program works. It just works. It's like for them, there's like a magical moment, like a, a gleam in their eyes. And that's always magical for me. Urban Coders Guild is celebrating its fifth year with courses in web development, iOS and Android app development, and Unity gaming development starting in the fall semester. For more information, including fall semester programs, visit urbancodersguild.org. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Carlos Moreno in Tulsa. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership with KOSU Radio, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Additional support is provided by the George Kaiser Family Foundation, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, and the Zero Families Foundation. Our theme music is by Moffat Music. Focus Black Oklahoma's executive producers are Karesh Ali Lansana and Bracken Klar. Our producers are Nick Alexandrov and Vanessa Gaona. Our production interns are Smriti Iyengar and Torin Doss. Visit us online at kosu.org, tricitycollective.com slash focusblackoklahoma, and YouTube at Tricity Collective. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at focusblackok. You can hear Focus Black Oklahoma on demand for free at kosu.org, npr1, npr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. KOSU values input from our listeners and the communities we serve. That's why we have the KOSU Texting Club. By texting the word hello to 844-777-7719, you'll sign up to get occasional messages from reporters about stories they're working on and from KOSU staff about news happening at the station. Text the word hello to 844-777-7719 to add your voice to our newsroom today.